Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Recover with Carly podcast. Today's episode is really exciting. I'm sitting down with my friend, Brittany Piper. Uh, It's funny because Brittany and I met before COVID at an event in LA, and we've just kind of stayed connected since then. And Brittany does a really, she does really amazing work. And I'm so excited to have her here to share her knowledge and her experience with all of you. So welcome, Brittany. I'm so excited to have you. Yay. I'm excited too. So excited. Thanks for having me. Of course. It feels like that speaking engagement that we both did feels like an eternity ago, literally like 10 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) It does. I think it was just what, probably at this point, three, two to three years. It was, was it in 2020? No, I think it was like, I think it was, I think it was before. Okay. Wait, when was it? I know I was pregnant. I know okay. that I was pregnant because yeah. I was craving in and out burger, which yeah. we in and out burger. And then afterwards, everyone from the event, they went to like a, I don't know if it was a vegan or a really, you know, healthy restaurant. I was yeah. like, I want none of this. <laughs> I just want a burger. We're like, no, let's go to in and out. That sounds 10 times yeah. better. <laughs> yeah. So it was probably very, either very end of 2019 or the very beginning of 2020. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So it, mu- it I think it must've been like before the shutdown. So it must've been like January, February, or even like the beginning of March before, before that. So yeah, right before, before the shutdown, but that, yeah, it feels so long ago. Um, and I'm so thankful that we were both there and, um, we were connected and we've stayed connected and we've, you know, got to support each other and the amazing work that, that we're both doing. So before we get into today's conversation, do you mind just introducing yourself to the listeners? Yeah. Do you want the short version? <laughs> you do. You. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm, uh, I'm uh, Brittany Piper. A lot of people call me Brit. And even when people ask, they're like, do you go by Brit? Do you go by Brittany? I'm like, you call me whatever you want. I don't have a problem. Um, so Britt Piper here, I am a somatic experiencing practitioner and a trauma informed coach. Um, and then I also do professional speaking. That was really, that was really kind of my life's work for my goodness, nearly a decade when you and I met, that was kind of in the, the, I wasn't, that was, that took the, the front seat for me was professional speaking. So I have a background in women's studies concentrations in gender-based violence, violence prevention. So I did a lot of work um, in recovery and trauma centers um, for many, many years. And then also did a lot of educational work and um, advocacy and professional speaking in the sexual violence space. Mm-hmm. With that, there was a lot of just, um, you know, crossing that barrier into the trauma world as well, because, you know, sexual violence in itself is a very traumatic experience. Um, and so I got to know a lot of people who work within the trauma informed space. Um, and that's really kind of where things blossomed for me. Um, I am a survivor of sexual violence and that's kind of how I came into this work. I think a lot of people who come into the trauma space, they were once, you know, survivors themselves still are survivors themselves. Um, and so a lot of what I teach, a lot of what I guide my clients through are things that I've had to learn on my own. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit, a little bit about me. Yeah. What is a, so for the listeners who aren't familiar, um, what is a somatic experience practitioner? If you want to give like a short answer to that, we will get more into it throughout the episode, but just for anyone listening, who's like, I don't have any idea what that means. Yeah. Like what the heck is she talking about? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so soma, the root word of soma actually means in the body. And so when we talk about someone who is a somatic experiencing practitioner, um, what I do is I help my clients to better be with and be in their body, better be with the experience of their body. So um, it was a modality that was actually created back in the 70s. It was developed by Peter Levine, um, neuroscientist, um, doctor, body worker, um, but really he focused on just the physiology. So the nervous system and how the nervous system and the body are impacted by trauma. And a lot of his work was, and his research was actually rooted in 
studying prey animals mm. in the wild. And so the big question that he posed was, if all of these animals are constantly living in states of fight, flight, or freeze, why is it that they don't remain traumatized like humans do? <laughs> so that, that set him out on this quest to really understand the nervous system. Um, and so through somatic work, we help uh, from a body first approach, focusing on the body and the nervous system and the physiology. We help our clients to come back into states of regulation, into rest and digest, um, and out of those stuck states of fight, flight, or freeze because of unprocessed trauma within the nervous system or the body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes so much sense. I mean, as, as a clinician, I understand that I'm, I'm like, yeah, I totally understand that, but I can understand also for listeners where it's like, I don't understand what you're saying. <laughs> so yeah. listeners be patient with us. I promise we will, we will get into it and we will explain it mm-hmm. you know, I, I in have, more detail. Yeah. Cause I, you know, the way that I came across it was through my own healing. Mm-hmm. Um, I've worked with a not a, I mean, I've worked with multiple talk therapists, uh, cognitive behavioral therapists throughout the the majority of my life Mm -hmm. Um, and still have a talk therapist today um, that I work with. But the one that I work with back in kind of the mid, when was it? My mid twenties, shortly after the assault, she said, you know, we've we've done a lot of like thought-based work, cognitive work, but it seems like your emotions, you have a hard time sitting with emotion. And so she said, maybe you should think about working with a somatic therapist. So it wasn't an SE practitioner, but a somatic therapist. And I was like, what is that? So I really had to have people like dumb it down for me because it just didn't make any sense. Um, And then of course I got really engrossed in the books and the literature and the research on how trauma um, is really stored within the body as well. And it was like, oh, this is the puzzle piece. I feel like I've been missing my whole life, you know? Um, So yeah, we can definitely put uh, it down because I've I've been there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So one thing that comes up for me uh, that you just mentioned is what is the difference between us um, a practitioner and a therapist for anyone who's listening who's maybe interested in somatic therapy? Like what what do you, what would you say is the difference in that? Yeah. So I would say the difference between like a talk therapist or a cognitive behavioral therapist and a somatic practitioner. So a cognitive behavioral therapist, they'll talk, they'll focus on a top-down modality. And really what we're referring to here kind of just, I mean, the simplest way to say it is we focus on the mind Mm -hmm. in talk therapy, you know, changing thoughts, um, which then can change behaviors, really having meaning and understanding. Um, whereas a somatic therapist works from a bottom-up approach. So they start with the body first and how trauma resides within the body and the emotional centers and the nervous system. Mm-hmm. And they help you to regulate your nervous system before we go into kind of the, the top, top-down approach. So before we then focus on, on thought and cognition. Um, both are incredibly important. And in the work that we do at the Healing Hub, which is the the practice that I run, we do a combination of both. So, you know, we start with the bottom up work to really regulate your system, get you back into states of, you know, regulation and safety within the body, which really then turns back on that, you know, that thinking rational brain. And then it's kind of like, just, you know, off to the races, let's talk about meaning, let's talk about your thought patterns. Um, so we do, we do a little bit of both, um, mm-hmm. and both are super important, which is why I always recommend that if you're just working with an SE practitioner, that you also maybe work with a therapist as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Cause I'm thinking like, I know some clinicians who, you know, are talk therapists who do like CBT and DBT and all of these different modalities, but who are also like certified in somatic therapy. Yep. Um, and so that was, yeah, I was curious if, if you, if you felt there was like a difference in that, or if someone can be both. Yeah. Yeah. Someone can definitely be both. So to become a, um, like a, I guess you could say a licensed or third, a certified somatic experiencing practitioner. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a three-year program through somatic experiencing international it's Peter Levine's, uh, program. 
And uh, the trainings that I have been in, my cohort is essentially, I'd say 80% of the of the people in my, my cohort are licensed counselors and therapists, which I think is incredible because again, they have this diverse skill set to be able to show up with their clients with all of those different tools. Um, and I, I really think that that is like such a great trauma-informed approach to focus on all of, all of the ways in which trauma impacts us. Um, but really just what it comes down to is looking at the whole slice or looking at the whole pie. You know, there's different slices. Um, talk therapy is one somatic work is one nutrition is one relationships is another. I mean, it all plays together when it comes to healing and recovery. Yeah. Yeah. And you experience, or you mentioned that you are a survivor of sexual violence And, um, I'm curious, like what, what was that light bulb moment for you where you decided that this was the work that you wanted to get into? Um, and was there a time where you were like, this is, this is extremely triggering. This is really difficult. I don't know if I can do this. Um, and if so, like, what did that process look like for you? Yeah. So it really has been, um, it has been a journey, my friend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I first got into, I guess we could kind of say like advocacy work or <clears throat> work alongside survivors when I was actually uh, 16. Um, my assault happened when I was 20, but when I was 16, I actually lost my brother in a car accident and we were both in high school at the time. My parents didn't have the best tools or strategies to cope. Um, you know, mom was back at work the next week, a very much like a very, the the kind of family where yeah, shit's hitting the fan, but like, we don't know how to handle it. So we're just not going to handle it at all. We're going to throw it under the rug. And, um, however they did have the, um, they did know that we needed to get help. And so, um, I went to a bereavement center for like group counseling and, um, when I was there, I learned about the opportunity to volunteer and be like a camp counselor for young children who lost loved ones. And so when I was 16, that's when kind of that journey started of like walking alongside others in their pain. Um, and that was just, uh, it was a very therapeutic process for me to, to recognize, I think, first of all, that I wasn't alone in my pain, that other people were experiencing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there was just a really beautiful connection that I was able to form um, with other people that I just don't think you can, you know, you can find elsewhere. Um, so that's kind of what sparked that for me. And then after the assault happened, it was just kind of another natural progression of the same thing. I was like, okay, (laughs) at the time I was in college, my, I, I was pursuing a degree in computer science, which I don't know what the heck I was thinking, but, uh, hated it, hated it girl. Mm -hmm. And then, um, yeah, the assault happened and just really kind of, you know, rocked my world. I was assaulted by a stranger who helped me change my flat tire. And um, <clears throat> the case was really public where I lived. I was living in Indianapolis, Indiana at the time. And then the trial process uh, was dragged out for nearly two years. And so it really was just this dark cloud over my life for a long time. I felt like I was in a constant state of survival. Um because he had been in and out of the system his entire life. So he knew how to work the system. So our case was postponed or continued nine times. And anytime it gets continued, you have to go back in with your attorneys, practice being on the way. It's like, it's like rehearsal, mm-hmm. which sucks. Um, you know, listen to the tape statements, go through the depositions. So for two years, I had to relive every graphic detail of that moment just over. I mean, talk about exposure-based therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, And so that in of itself was kind of almost like a re-traumatization, you know, just going through the whole justice process. And so um, I just became really passionate about understanding that like sexual violence isn't just a, you know, systemic issue, but the way that it is um, handled within the court process is also a systemic issue. The way that I was treated by the police officers, by the detectives, um, you know, a lot of victim blaming. And so that just, I think it sparked more passion and understanding that 
there are so many survivors out there who are experiencing the same thing. Um, and so I just felt this desire to want to help kind of like I did with, you know, the young children at the bereavement center. So, Mm -hmm. um, I switched majors to women's studies and that's kind of what started that path. And then of course, working in the rape crisis and the trauma centers, I did that at home. I did that abroad. Um, I've done a lot of trauma work with the U S military, with the department of justice, um, within prison systems. And again, there's always this blending of just the fact that we are not living in a trauma informed world. I'm not answering your question. No, you are. You are. <laughs> so yeah, I don't, I don't know that there was like a moment, um, a moment for me. Well, actually, yeah. So the somatic work going back to it, I knew that like I was processing and working through the trauma from like a cognitive perspective, mm-hmm. but my personality after the assault had completely changed. I was very, a very, I feel like soft natured, um, like very kind person. Like I like to think that I'm very kind. I'm very loving and gentle. And, uh, I became the opposite. I was very hardened. I was angry. I was bitter. Um, I was self-medicating a lot, drinking a lot. And when I would drink that anger would really come out in violent ways to the point where I ended up in a jail cell, um, because I tried to essentially attacked two police officers mm-hmm. who um, were arresting someone that I knew. And um, like, it couldn't be further from who I was. And so I knew that there was all of this pent up fight, like this anger within me that was, in, that was completely foreign to who I was. And so my therapist said, I think that there's some unresolved fight response. There's some unresolved anger within your nervous system that you need to process somatically. And, um, that's kind of what started the the journey there mm-hmm. going to jail. That's when it yeah. started. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I just want to validate like the strength that it takes for you to be able to one, get through everything that you've gotten through. You have just shared some like pretty extreme trauma that you've experienced grief, losing, you know, losing your brother and then going through, you know, the assault and then having to go through the entire trial process over and over and over again. Um, and then, you know, going through drinking and then getting arrested, like that is all extremely traumatic. And you know, that you you're in this work. Um, but I just want to, I want to just validate that it takes so much strength to one, get through that. And two, then to submerge yourself into that work, um, after getting through that. Yeah. Yeah. And people, people do ask, um, you know, what's been the biggest contributing factor to your recovery. And I do think it is finding meaningful work, like finding the per not, not that everything has, not that everything happens for a reason. I hate that quote. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Make you stronger. No, sometimes life just sucks. Yeah. Sometimes things are just hard and like, let us just feel the, like that things are hard. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think that I've been able to find the duality in that, in that there are some really shitty things that came out of those times in my life and I can hold space for that and like compassion for myself while also, also recognizing that some good things did come out of it as well. So I don't think it has to be either or, um, but that's been probably one of the biggest parts of my, my recovery is yeah. being able to guide or help people on the same path that I was once on and, and, and still on in many ways. Yeah. Right. I mean, like yeah. I we're on off of the path of healing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I find so much like empowerment in that. And I think that's one reason why I love, I love learning from you. I love following you. It's, you have so much knowledge and you are changing so many people's lives in such a beautiful way. Um, because processing trauma, like coming to terms with trauma is not easy. I see this with clients every day, you know, people who are in denial of things that they've experienced, um, people who, avoid talking about 
experiences that they have because they are afraid of, you know, how they're going to react, how their body's going to react, which is extremely valid Mm -hmm. and wanting to avoid that space. But as you know, clinicians, we know that that avoidance is never the answer. Um, and it's usually, it's usually going to come up in some capacity. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm curious what you, what advice you would give someone who knows that they've had these traumatic experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, what advice would you give them to start that work of talking about it, recognizing it and processing it? Yeah. So I love that point that you brought, brought up. We always say avoiding is not the same thing as processing. Mm-hmm. I always think of the analogy, like, you know, when the trash is full and you're like, I don't want to take out the trash today. So you push it down, but yeah. the trash, the tra- that stinky trash is still there. <laughs> yes. Yes. I saw a quote the other day that said, um, that, that said, um, what was it? It was, it was like dismissing emotions increases suffering. Mm. And that was a big one for me of like this idea that the more that we dismiss it or the more we push it down, the more we end up suffering Yeah, because yeah. we don't, we're not allowing ourselves to, to process it, whether it's mental and emotional suffering or physical, like we start to, to experience the physical suffering from it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the, the trash gets even stinkier, the more that we push yeah. it down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so some steps, steps are good. I think that one of the first steps that we always recommend to people is to start to find felt sense of safety within your body. Mm -hmm. And when we say that people are like, what's felt sense. So felt sense. I can't remember. Um, the term was created by, oh, I can't remember his name. Mm -hmm late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, I'll have to get back to you with that and yeah, put it in the notes. Okay. Yeah, but, we'll put it in the notes. Uh, yeah, but but Peter Levine, again, the creator of somatic experiencing, he took this felt sense of safety and he incorporated that into SE work. And the reason that you want to try and experience what it feels like to feel safe in your body is because well, first of all, the, the definition that we consider as trauma is that it's any event or experience that's too overwhelming to your nervous system. And when your system becomes overwhelmed and then it then gets stuck in states of fight, flight, or freeze. So like for me, I was definitely stuck in a state of fight, um, like had tried to fight back during my assault, but was overpowered. And so what happens naturally is that when your system can't um, exert or use a fight or flight response, your system will go into a state of freeze when fight or when fighting or fleeing is not an option. Mm-hmm. And we see this a lot with, you know, like young children who grew up in homes where fighting the caretaker who's abusing them would just create more danger because they've been, you know, they're, they're, they're little people or running away would create more danger because they're little people. Mm-hmm. So they succumb to their environment, but we see a lot of suppression of emotion, which creates depression a lot of shutdown um, within their system. So with the nervous system, in order for your system to come back into a state of rest and digest and get unstuck, it first has to recognize that there's safety around. And the nervous system operates like the language is through feeling and sensation and emotion. Doesn't doesn't operate from the, the thinking brain. Uh, it's all subconscious. So below your conscious brain. So, um, you know, felt sense of safety is like, what does it feel like to smell my child's hair in this moment? And like, as I smell my child's hair, can I feel the warmth of my chest, like open up? Can I feel my shoulders relax? And that's like the evidence that your system needs to know that, Hey, listen, you're not still fighting or running away or shutting down from that trauma that your system is still stuck in the past with mm-hmm. You're here in this present moment and you're actually safe. Um, so felt sense of safety is, is really big. And we all experience that felt sense of safety in such different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately we, we call them glimmers. So that it's the, the opposite of a trigger. 
know, a trigger is a danger cue, something that does not feel safe. Um, and a glimmer is something that does feel safe. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it'd probably be step number one. Yeah. And, um, I know that sounds stupid, simple. We always say that somatic work is actually stupid, simple, <laughs> um, but that would, that would probably be step one is to start incorporating more moments of felt safety throughout mm-hmm. your life. Yeah. And those moments can be, they can involve any of the senses, correct? It doesn't necessarily need to be like smell, but it could be touch or taste or anything like that. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we call them, um, you know, the, the things that you are finding that feel safe, we call them your resources. Mm-hmm. So, um, what are your resources? There are both internal and external resources. So external resources are exactly what you're talking about. The five um, outer sensory, mm-hmm. uh, you know, experiences that we have. Um, and then there's the inner sensory, which is your sixth sense, uh, which is called proprioception. So it's noticing what you're sensing in your body. Mm-hmm. that ease in my, oh, my jaw is easing up, or I'm noticing that uh, I feel heavier in my chair right now, you know, mm-hmm. or I feel stable, I feel grounded. So, um, and then some other internal resources can be like image or a memory. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I'll ask someone at the beginning of a session, what's a moment that you had recently that was pleasant? Oh, when I got to go on a walk with my partner, and we held hands. Like, I don't remember the last time we just left the phones at home and like, we just spent time talking. Yeah. Okay. That was a pleasant moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I'll be like, how are you noticing that in your body right now? Like, how does that feel pleasant? I'm actually noticing right now that my breath is a little bit deeper and like, I'm smiling, just thinking mm-hmm. about them. So it's okay. There's a resource for you. You know, that, that image. Okay. Yeah. And does it, mm-hmm. um, does it matter whether you use internal or external? Is there a time which you would recommend one over the other? Yeah. So, um, when you are using external resources, like your sense, your senses and your environment, um, I know I'm throwing a lot of terms, terms at you, we call that orienting. So you're orienting to the environment around you through mm-hmm. your senses. Um, but sometimes the environment around you is still not safe. So like people that still live in traumatized environments, people that are dealing with <clears throat> like racial inequity, people that are um, in uh, relationships that are still abusive or still under the same roof as the caregiver who used to do X, Y, and Z. Um, and so the external environment actually might be more of a trigger than a glimmer. And so that is when you can pull into an internal resource, like a memory or an image or something that you notice in your body that feels easy to be with. But we also, I recommend often um, kinesthetic orienting, which is like orienting to an object. Mm-hmm. Like for me, I have my, I always keep these here. I have these little stones in here. I'm Dingling. Yeah. These little stones that I took from, um, like I love being out in nature. Nature is such a glimmer, such a resource for me. And I took these from a lake in Montana, one of my favorite lakes at the top of a glacial mountain. Mm-hmm. And um, so whenever I have these rocks, like even if I'm, so I'll take these when I travel. I mean, you know, we travel a lot for yeah. work sometimes. Mm-hmm. And airports and like busy environments, they just like, mm, don't love it. So yeah. I'll put in, <laughs> I'll put in headphones and I play soundtrack music. Like I love me some Hans Zimmer. <laughs> and then I carry my stone with me, like in my jacket pocket and just having that and being able to notice like the texture of it, right? The feeling of it, even in the midst of chaos, I can feel such calm and such ease. Uh, so that's another example too. Yeah. And I think that's so helpful to like hear described because I think that's something that comes up a lot with me in terms of like my clients is asking them like, what are those, you know, like safe spaces? Where are those, what are those things you can turn to when you're feeling like dysregulated or, you know, whatever the emotions are. And a lot of people struggle with coming up with that which, you know, is, is sad that, you know, people don't feel like they have that 
personal space per se, whether it's, they live with someone that it's not safe or, you know, they're not supported and whatever work they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's always, it's always great to hear that there can be this like experimental type of, um, process in finding that, that resource for you, yeah. for, for you. Yeah, definitely. You know, and and I think I said this already, like it, imagery is huge, right? Mm-hmm. So like, what's, what was a pleasant moment recently? What's a memory? Where's your favorite place that you can consider? Mm-hmm. Sometimes we'll ask the question, like if, if there's someone that you can think of right now in your life that you feel safe with, that mm-hmm. you feel like is a resource for you, can you imagine them sitting next to you in this moment? Right. And can we yeah. just take a, take like 15 seconds to just feel into that. Can you notice um, what it might feel like as they sit into the cushion? Can you notice what it might feel like if you, you know, your weight were to shift towards them as the weight goes down? Um, and just those little things, it's, because again, the nervous system doesn't operate from a rational perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so imagery can be really, really powerful mm-hmm. environments that are just not, not safe. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do flash the flash technique with a lot of my clients, which is a reprocessing technique for uh, traumatic experiences and imagery is one of, it is like the main part of that process. It's finding your safe space, um, and creating that in your mind, whether it's an actual safe space that you can think of somewhere you went on vacation, a time when you were little, and your grandma's kitchen, or like even just a combination of things that you throw together to make one room. Um, and it's always so amazing to see like clients creating that image in their head Mm -hmm. and to just see like, okay, go into your safe space, you know, Mm -hmm. closing their eyes, allowing themselves to get into that space and just noticing like their body, like, like their posture and their body language changes. Like they're like, like they're literally taking a breath of air, like, okay, I can relax a little because I'm, I'm in this space, um, mentally. And that's, that was a big moment for me when I was doing my flash training was just how important that imagery work is. Um, absolutely. And we, um, in in somatic work, we refer to something called Cybam, which is, um, it's an acronym, but it stands for sensation, image, imagery. Mm-hmm. Uh, B is behavior, A is affect, emotion, and M is meaning. And with every experience, we have what we call side mm-hmm. So um, for instance, like when I spend time or like when I think about my son, okay, like there's probably a certain image that pops up for me. There's a certain sensation that I notice in my body. It's always a warmness in my chest. There's a behavior. Um, Maybe that behavior is like a welling of my eyes or like a smile on my face. The affect is joy. The meaning is I have so much unconditional love in this moment. Um, And so with image, image can be really, really powerful too. Like um, when there are moments, uh, I'm getting way too off topic here. Okay. <laughs> so, so but what can happen is um like we can use image to um help people to process like and I'm sure you do this with like the you know the, the flash stuff too to process not just what feels good right like what feels like a resource but also to go through what maybe felt dangerous mm-hmm. so um you know, going into an image of, okay, you weren't able to assert a boundary the other day at work with your coworker. Mm -hmm. What I feel like in this moment to imagine imagery, imagine yourself like a bear, Mm -hmm. right? And and as you notice yourself as a bear, and again, you say like their posture Mm -hmm. kind of changes, right? Their attitude, the affect, the emotion changes, the meaning changes just by imagining themselves as a bear. Um, like, oh, the, the, the sensation, like, instead of like shutting down and feeling cold, I'm actually noticing that my heart is speeding up and I feel heat in my face. Cause this fight response of setting boundaries of protecting myself is now starting to enter into the system. Um, God, it's just so fascinating. I just it get really so is. fascinated by the work. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, you know, the, the importance 
in the, like the mind body experience, which is unfortunately not, it's not talked about enough. And I wish that it were something that we were taught like in school, like how that can, how strong that connection is in terms of our mind and our physical body and how we can literally like make ourselves sick because of our mental and emotional state and well-being. And I think that that oftentimes leaves people with a lot of unanswered questions when they don't have the resources to understand that there is a connection there. Mm -hmm. And they're like, why am I feeling sick? Why am I not feeling great? Um, And, you know, not all doctors are going to be, you know, well-versed in saying like, oh, it might be your mental or emotional health, Mm -hmm. um, which is unfortunate, but it's well, also I, great to have people like you and, you know, like therapy informed, I mean, trauma informed therapists and, you know, somatic therapists who are like, let's look at this connection between your body and your mind. Mm-hmm. I, I am of the belief that they intentionally leave things out for a reason. 100%. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not to like get into the, you know, quacko talk, but, um, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, Dr. Gabor Mate uh, mm-hmm. and his book that recently came out, the myth, the myth of the new normal or the myth of normal. Um, but just talking about, and you know, he's a, he's a trauma survivor himself and um, but he's a world renowned doctor, uh, therapist, physician, and incredibly well-versed in the field of trauma from all aspects, all slices of the pie. And he is, he's calling out lately the systemic issues that we have within, you know, the medical community, the educational systems, the justice system, and how it's not trauma informed, but in, but he believes that in some ways that's on purpose Mm -hmm. because if people are sick, companies can still make more money. Right. But we are of the belief, especially in somatic work, that um, we are all built and we are all innately built to self heal. Mm -hmm. Our systems, our brains, our bodies, they were chemically, physiologically, biologically built to self heal. And um, doctors and pharmaceutical companies won't want to hear that. Right. (laughs) Which is why we practice so much just symptom management and, and allopathic models of, of healing. Yeah. Um, but when you show people that their body knows exactly what to do, their brain knows exactly what to do. If it's just given the proper context and education, and then the tools, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's amazing what can happen when people are given that power. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And even just looking at that in terms of like, like racial, like, mm-hmm like minorities and marginalized communities in terms of if they had the tools, the proper, you know, tools to actually, you know, heal the trauma, generational trauma, all of that, then it would be hard for the systems of oppression to remain because people would be advocating for themselves. They would be, you know, doing this work that I don't necessarily think that they want us to do, or they want them to do. So it's, that is always very frustrating, um, from a clinical perspective too, of like, where are the resources? Why are there, why aren't there resources? Like where I need to do more. I want to do more. I want, you know, it's, I always find myself in that space. Um, And we, that's actually a convert. So right before I got on my call with you, I was, um, in my team call with the, the healing hub team. And that was a big part of our conversation today was just, you know, constantly coming back to that. There is a disproportionate mm-hmm. amount of trauma that is experienced within certain populations and communities within our country and our world. And how can we do better to serve those communities to, um, you know, bring equity to all when it comes to healing. And so that's a lot of like where our membership really stemmed from, um, you know, scholarships, things like that. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's all at a systemic level, you know? So, but these, I mean, the the little dents that we can make, we will, Mm -hmm. we will take them where we can. Um, but yeah, I just, uh, you know, it's really, 
the things that a lot of our clients will say to us when they come in and start doing more of the somatic approach um, is I've been in therapy my whole life. Why have I never heard of this? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? Or like, I wish I would have known about this 20 years ago. Um, you know, I have some clients, uh, my oldest client, she's 72. Um, but I do have a, one of my clients, he has been, as he puts it on a cocktail of medications for the past 34 years and been doing work in the somatic space and also working, you know, very closely with his psychiatrist to mm-hmm. kind of titrate off or taper off of, you know, medications. He's now medication free mm-hmm. just from doing, you know, just from learning how to be with his body, how yeah. to experience the emotions, how to regulate his nervous system. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just, it's amazing what, what people can do on their own. Yeah. Definitely. And one last question to kind of wrap things up. Cause we're talking a lot about trauma. Um, and I'm curious, like for anyone who's listening, who may be thinking like, have I experienced trauma? I don't know if this was trauma or if this was not trauma. Um, how would you like explain trauma or like a traumatic experience to someone who maybe isn't sure if that is what their experience was? Oh my goodness. I love this conversation. Um, I, I know I keep bringing up the, the, the healing hub, but in our, in our programs at the healing hub, in our, our program at the healing hub, we do very strict psychoeducation at the beginning, mm-hmm. helping people to, again, have context. So your nervous system needs, it's called the, the three essential elements for safety, mm-hmm. context, choice, and connection. So we do a lot of psychoeducation and giving context as to what is trauma, number one, how did you experience it? And how did that, what imprint, what imprint did that leave on your body, brain, physiology, mm-hmm. um, you know, teaching them about the nervous system, how the brain operates, all of those things. And those are really big aha moments for people. And they're like, oh my God, there's nothing wrong with me. This makes sense. Like how I respond, how I feel, how I think it makes sense through the lens of my biology. Um, but we do like trauma basics for a couple of weeks because a lot of people come in and they're like, I'm seeing all the symptoms that I've experienced trauma. Like when you're like this, this is, you know, this program and this work is perfect for the person who's experiencing this. I check all those boxes, but I don't think I've had any trauma. Mm-hmm. So again, going back to the definition of trauma is anything that's any event or experience that is overwhelming to the nervous system. And what is unique in that is that each nervous system is unique Mm -hmm. and adapts differently in different environments. So I'll give you an example. Uh, Let's say that boy A and boy B, they grew up on the same street. Okay. And boy A lives in a home where the parents are around. So they're present. Um, they are emotionally regulated. So they're not, you know, really, really anxious all the time, really angry or shut down when he's distressed. They help him. They help soothe him, comfort him. They listen to him. They give him lots of love. It feels like a safe environment for him. Boy B, he lives in a home where one parent is never around because they're always traveling for work. The other parent is home, but they're, um, maybe self-medicating, drinking all the time. So they're present, but they're not emotionally and mentally present. And whenever he does have issues and he brings it up, they essentially tell him, take it elsewhere. I don't have time for you or just get over Mm -hmm. it. So not a safe environment. Okay. So these two nervous systems, these two boys, their systems have probably, they probably look very, very different. So they both get on the bus one day. They experience the exact same type of bullying, exact same words are said, and they both walk away get off the bus and they're both feeling activated in their system, right? They're in those states of fight, flight, or freeze. They go home and boy A goes home to parents who are there, caregivers who can give him love, who can help him to regulate, right? And he goes from (sighs) to, (sighs) okay, right? And they're saying, we're going to talk to the principal and you're not riding the bus until that boy's kicked off, okay? Mm -hmm. So it feels safe. And this for him maybe doesn't feel as traumatic, but boy B goes home to, again, one of the parents is not home and the other parent is, um, you know, high or medicated and essentially says, I don't have time for you. Mm -hmm. So this, this boy stays stuck in the trauma. He's not able to come back into a state of rest and digest. 
and he remained stuck in that state of fight, flight, or freeze that he was in. And so even though it's just, you know, this maybe a blip on the radar for boy A, for boy B, this could be a traumatic experience for him, something that impacts his life to come. Mm -hmm. So again, trauma, I think the way that we consider it is that it's like some horrific, overwhelming, catastrophic event. And it can be, we like to say, it's something that can be too much, too fast, or not enough. Mm -hmm. You can have, um, you know, when things are too overwhelming or they happen too fast for your system to be able to handle things like a car accident, assault, grief, loss, you know, natural disaster, all those things that we think of, but it can also be getting not enough of something like not enough love, not enough attention, not enough resource, not enough safety for people who are in communities that are, um, you know, where there's things like discrimination, racism, mm-hmm. things like that. Um, so there's that. And then also trauma can be experienced directly as we're talking about, but as you mentioned earlier, generational trauma, it can be experienced indirectly. Mm-hmm. So the trauma of our parents and our parents, parents and our parents, parents that impacts our DNA. It impacts our, our, um, hormones or stress hormones. It impacts our nervous system responses and how we cope in the world. And it impacts our, our belief systems as well. Mm -hmm. A lot of people will come in and they'll be like, I literally can't think of anything. Like I got all the symptoms, but I can't think of anything. And we come to find that it's more so that there was, there's been trauma that's been passed down Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, in many ways. So I know that was a really long-winded answer, but trauma is so much more nuanced than people think. Mm-hmm. And I really think in some ways we all experience it at one point in our lives. Yeah. yeah, definitely. No, I think that was perfectly described. And I think that that the concept of generational trauma is it's difficult for people to wrap their head around because it it like it's it's hard to imagine that something like trauma can be passed down. Mm-hmm. Um, right. We see this with eating disorders too, and research that shows like eating disorders can be, um, genetic, like it can be passed down and you would never think that like you, you would never think like something like that could be passed down. And so I, you know, thinking about trauma the same way mm-hmm. is I think really helpful for individuals to be like, I'm having these symptoms, but I don't, I can't pinpoint an exact moment or an exact experience where mm-hmm. I, you know, had this traumatic event, um, or traumatic experience and looking at then that generational and maybe having conversations with parents or grandparents, if that is a possibility, um, and asking like, did you experience trauma? Like what was, you know, what was your mental health like? And not only does that kind of provide them with answers, but also I think is a beautiful way to connect with, Mm -hmm. with family members and having that conversation if possible. Yeah. You start to, as you go down this journey, you start to get really curious about your, where, like, like where you come from or where you came from and where, you know, the families and the lines and generations before you came from. Mm -hmm. Uh, and there's a really good book on it. We always recommend to our clients. It's called It Didn't Start With You by Mark Wolin. And it talks a lot about intergenerational trauma and epigenetics. Um, and and also too, um, you know, a lot of talk around like trauma in the womb or like if you had like a traumatic birth, um, that is something that impacts your physiology yeah. and your, your nervous system. Um, and then also, you know, people often don't, explicitly remember like explicit memory you can explain or put into words they might not explicitly remember trauma but in your first three years of life your body still implicitly remembers your trauma Mm -hmm. it might be that like the first three years of life like for me um when I was born I was taken from my mother and put into foster care Mm -hmm. um, because there was certain substances found in her system and in my system Um, and so I was separated from my mother at birth for quite some time. And I know now looking back and learning about, you know, attachment, the science of attachment and how important those first two to three years are of of life um, and how that, how that develops a young child's nervous system and how basically the, the primary 
relationship that they have with their primary caregiver, how that sets the scene for your nervous system and how that sets the scene for your relational patterns in adulthood. Oh my gosh, I learned so much. And of course, that's something I don't explicitly remember, but your nervous system is already in your body. It's holding memories even before you're even born. Um, and so, yeah, some of our clients have come in and then it's not until a few weeks of working together. They're like, oh my gosh, I was, you know, I had failure to thrive as a baby and I was in the NICU for eight weeks and then the light bulbs go off. And then there's so much more. Again, that context gives a lot of like, I'm getting emotional just talking about it because I'm thinking yeah. of some of my clients who've had those moments. It's, it's just, it's, it's remarkable when people start to understand the blueprint of where they came from. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pregnant and emotional. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no need to apologize at all. Um, yeah, I think it's the, all of this work is, is, is so amazing and it blows my mind. Like every day when I learn more and more about it, I'm like, what the hell? Like <laughs> our bodies are amazing. Our minds are amazing. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's so important that we have these conversations and we create safe spaces to talk about trauma and to talk about, you know, experiences that you've been through. I think that a lot of times people don't feel like they have that space. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like going to a parent and saying like, Hey, you know, I, like I saw a TikTok recently and it was a, a girl who was like, so I went, I was having a conversation with my mom and I told her like, Hey mom, I think I, you know, have, I have trauma from like my childhood. And the mom's response was, Oh, so I was a terrible mom. And it yeah. was just like very defensive. Right. And I think that's, I always think that's so unfortunate that that's a response that people give. Um, and I think that's why these conversations are so important because it, it normalizes and creates like a safe space that everyone experiences some sort of trauma in some capacity, mm -hmm. whether it's generational, whether they remember specifically what happened, um, and just being able to understand that you're not alone in that, I think is really empowering. Yeah. Yeah. I think recognizing that even if, even if right now in this moment, you don't consider yourself to have experienced trauma or mm -hmm. anything like that. I know that, you know, someone who has, mm -hmm. you're all impacted by it in some way and the way that they experience it then shows up probably in the way that you relate to them and in your relationship. Um, and that's why it's important that again, we just become all, we all become more trauma informed. And when we say trauma informed, really what we're talking about is just this conversation we're having here mm -hmm. become more informed about how trauma plays a part and plays a role into how we uh, show up mm -hmm. in the world, um, how it lays the foundation for our behaviors and our thoughts and our emotions and all of those things. Um, so that's, that's really what, what we mean. Yeah. And I think that that kind of leads us into a perfect, like last question, um, which is, what advice would you give someone who has a friend or a family member who is navigating trauma? Like how, like what advice would you give in terms of support? Yeah. So support is going to look so very different to everyone. Um, and I talk a lot about this with um, like survivors of sexual violence, for instance, mm -hmm. like, you know, I still do a lot of um, not as much professional speaking because um, the other work has kind of taken over a bit, but when I go and speak about sexual violence, people always come up after and they ask, I know someone, what can I do to help as an ally, as an advocate to them, as a friend? Um, and so my first response is always ask them what support looks like, because some people want space. Some people want you near, some people want your constructive feedback on something. Some people want you to just have a listening ear. We all accept support and prefer support in a different way. I just think that we assume that how we want support is how everyone else wants support. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so that's, that's my first thing is like, give them choice and agency in how they receive that support. So just get curious, mm -hmm. you know, how can I support you? What does that look like? Um, is it okay if I support you? And continue to show up. So don't ghost. 
um, even if they are distant, check in every once in a while. Um, I think that that's, that's important. Um, also allow them to heal in whatever way they want to. There are so many different ways that people can start to explore recovery and healing. Uh, it is not one size fits all. Um, and so again, what works for you might not work for them. So always provide, you know, if you want to like provide resources, like a list of resources, a diverse list of resources, mm-hmm. right? But don't push or encourage them to do um, one specific thing. So that, that would probably be it. And then again, just coming to understand, I think getting educated on what trauma is, mm-hmm. how it impacts us. Um, I think that in many ways you can start to speak their language. That's what a lot of our clients will say to us is, I feel like I've opened a whole box of this new language within the trauma world and my nervous system and all of these things. And like, I don't know how to communicate and translate this to the people in my life, which is why we have like a little booklet, which is like translating trauma for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, you know, hoping that people will just take the initiative and maybe start to learn, learn a little bit about trauma, educate yourself. Um, There are a couple of books that I'd recommend to start doing that. So The Body Keeps the Score, of course, is like the holy grail book of the trauma world, Um, but it can be kind of activating. Um, There are, you know, if you've experienced trauma yourself, just make sure that you have resources because he does talk about trauma in detail. Um, It didn't start with you as a good one. I mean, I, I can give you like a whole book list. We have a, we actually have a book list at the healing hub, but I think it has like over 60 books on it, which is probably a little bit too much. Yeah. I think that is really important and really helpful advice. I, I think the one thing that stands out for me is that question of like, what does support look like for you? Right? Like what, what do you need right now? What can I do to help you right now? I think that's such an important question and not even just to ask individuals or friends or people we know who are experiencing trauma, but just people who are going through anything, right? Like what, what can I do for you right now? Or what do you need from me? Or how can I support you? Um, is so it's such a powerful question instead of just assuming this is what I would need if I were in their situation. So I'm going to give them what I would need because, then you're, you know, maybe going in for a hug and they're like, I don't want to be touched. Don't touch me. I don't want to hug. Or, you know, you say something and they're like, that's not helpful. That's not what I need right now. And I think that asking that question just avoids that assumption. Um, it well, just gives them the agency, like you said, that gives them the choice to express to you exactly what it is they need. And that, that agency is a really powerful piece because you know, people who survive trauma or have gone through trauma, in many ways, they feel like agency, choice, control, power has been taken from them. Yeah. Whether it's losing someone, whether it's being mistreated, whether it's being abused, whatever that is. So giving them that actual opportunity to have agency, to have choice, to have power again, um, you know, just those little subtleties of allowing them to make those choices um, can really um make a big difference. So definitely 100%. And I think that's the perfect note to end on, um, today. I've learned so much throughout this conversation. I am so thankful that you took time out of your very busy schedule to come and talk to this community and to share your knowledge and your experience. I appreciate you so much. Um, and before we wrap up, do you mind sharing with the community where they can find you? Yes. Um, so they can find me on Instagram at heal with Brit two T's. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find me on TikTok. There's a whole live, there's an archive of videos. I'm not as active anymore, but, um, there are a lot of videos on TikTok, all educational stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's just, uh, the Brit Piper again with two T's. Mm-hmm. And if you just want to learn more about, um, our team or the work that we do, you can go to myhealinghub.com. Perfect. Yeah. And I'll put everything in the show notes. Um, and we will link some books and some resources for the listeners. Um, but again, Brittany, thank you so much for being here. This was 
such an important conversation. Um, and listeners, if you resonated with today's episode, please feel free, leave a rating or a review. Um, if you have any questions, reach out. We are happy to answer any of your questions, whether that's, you know, questions for me, questions for Brittany. Um, I'll link everything below. So if you're interested in the healing hub, you can check that out as well. I highly recommend it's an amazing space of individuals and professionals, clinicians, practitioners, you name it. And um, thank you all for listening and we'll see you in the next episode.